O God, our Father, bless forward in faith. Inspire us and strengthen our fellowship. Help us to witness to the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that with love, patience, and evangelical zeal, we may win many hearts to Catholic truth an apostolic order for godly life within the fellowship of thy holy church. We ask this through Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome back, our friends, to this Forward in Faith North America podcast. We have with us a very special guest, Bishop Keith Ackerman. So, Bishop, we're glad that you are able to take the time to to join us virtually today and tell yes. us tell us about Forward in Faith and where we come from. Well, that's a, that's a great question. And the reason it's important is because sometimes people will come up to me and they say, um, tell us about forward and faith, and I have to find out if they're wanting to know within their lifetime, or if it means since they became Anglicans, yeah, or did they want to know where it really came from? Uh, okay, if they really want to know where it comes from, I get excited because that means we have a story. Well, let Let's go from where we really came from and yeah, get I the wanna, story. I want to know. I want to know the full story, sir. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well. When I was a teenager, and to put this into perspective, I'm 77 years old. So if we would go back uh, to my teenage years, I became a card-carrying teenager, member of the American Church Union. And the American Church Union uh, was so named because it needed to be distinguished from the church union in England. And all that was was a group of Anglo-Catholics who wanted to make sure that the Catholic faith was promulgated, taught, and defended. And so one of the things that the American Church Union would have been noted for was if you walked into churches, all churches in those days had track racks. That's how people got their information. So there'd be these large racks that they would have numerous tracks in them. And the American Church Union was really upfront, explaining all sorts marvelous things about the breadth of the Catholic faith and what it meant to be an Anglo-Catholic, as a matter of fact, and also published something called the American Church News, which would then get some of the brightest and the best to be able to write articles and explain the theological realities. We had chapters all around the country and in England, and uh, then something happened. Uh, It got to be the late 60s. And suddenly we no longer simply had the luxury of being able to talk about what it meant to be an Anglo-Catholic and which prayers and what our theological basis was, et cetera, et cetera. We were suddenly being challenged. And that's because in 1967, the Episcopal Church decided to put out a, a book of common prayer on the interim basis called the Liturgy of the Lord's Supper. And so what that meant was for the next couple of years, members of the American Church Union were saying, you got to be kidding me. This is going to take the place of what we do every Sunday. Mm. And they, oh, yeah, you'll love it. But don't worry, there's a better one coming. So that got to be about 
1971. And sure enough, another book came out called The Green Book. And then another, and another, and another. And the next thing you know, there were a number of our people who were suddenly very, very confused about what they were going to do, meaning that they wanted to be what I would call very um, conscious of how important the prayer book is. But which prayer book? It was the first time when we started asking which prayer book. And we came up with that remarkably important uh, axiom of Lex Aronde Lex Credendi. Namely, now we're saying, well, the law of prayer, what you pray, that expresses what you believe. And now we're asking questions because we could see everything being done from 1967 onwards meant that there would be a new book of common prayer. So lo and behold, 1976 came. And many of us, uh, I was a young priest, were saying, oh, what are we going to do? Well, at that general convention, two things happened. One, Book of Common Prayer. Two, ordained women as priests. And suddenly, those of us who had always been Anglo-Catholics and had always been a part of Anglicanism were saying, say what? Mm -hmm. You mean we're going to now be praying differently, and we're also going to have somebody different standing at the altar? So th this was shell shock. And so suddenly, the next thing that we discovered is there were people forming little gatherings, little groups. Uh, what are we going to do to uh, work uh, in a way that we can stand firm in whatever our faith is? So I remember sitting down with a, a wonderful priest uh, who was... Um, wanting to form a group under the authority of several of the so-called Anglo-Catholic bishops called Commission on Apostolic Ministry, CAM. So CAM became the first organized group that, instead of being just focused on the propagation of the Catholic faith, had to do a strong defense of why we cannot um, accept a prayer book that has been rearranged so dramatically and uh, the order of ministry being so dramatically changed. Mind you, in both instances, prayer book and uh, ordination of women, without consultation with any other Anglicans around the world. Mm. And so for some of us, we said, well, that's kind of what Protestants do. So <laughs> you know, we've been talking about the fact that we're not. So why this Protestant behavior as uh, it relates to changing things without having appropriate consultation? Well, suddenly we discovered something, we Anglo-Catholics, which surprised us. Suddenly there was what I would guess call a, a greater sense of evangelicals. Now, I hadn't heard about evangelicals when I was a boy. You hadn't being brought up Anglican. I'd never heard of evangelicals. Oh, okay, <laughs> because uh, I, I mean, I had remembered reading history that there were people in England who occasionally called themselves evangelicals, but we just simply didn't use those terms in the sixties. I okay. mean, in the early seventies. Um, I mean, we. I would hear people say, "High church, broad church, and low church." 
but as it related to having a particular point of view of presenting Anglicanism, that was pretty much what we assumed the English were doing. We didn't have that yet so much in the United States. You know, we later learned that there were evangelicals and other traditions, but it was not what I would call an organized reality in the American church. Hmm. However, they became increasingly concerned, those um, two odd groups of Anglo-Catholics and evangelicals got together and said, is there a violation of scripture going on here that has allowed some of these things to happen? And so for the first time, this growing group of evangelicals, this was before anybody was talking about, for example, the Trinity School for Ministry, but this growing group of evangelicals and Anglo-Catholics got their heads together and they said, can we work together? Well, you know, the Anglo-Catholics said, can we work with people who have morning prayer three Sundays out of four and just have Holy Communion at eight o'clock and, and don't wear the right kind of vestments? And, and the, the low churchmen who became evangelicals then said, can we work with these crazy people who act more like Roman Catholics? And the answer was, in the end, yes, we could, because we both misunderstood the other. Mm, okay. So it meant we had to talk together and find out why did we have that attitude about each other, which wasn't based on reality. I remember at that point, a director or an assistant of a, a large low church parish came up to me, rector of an Anglo-Catholic parish, says, why don't you just become, why don't you just become a Roman Catholic? Which, you know, was offensive because I have a lot of reasons why not. But uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> I just took a deep breath and I looked at him and I said, well, why don't you just become a Presbyterian? Right. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So, That's good. So we decided that we could keep on doing that or we could keep finding ways to work together. And that meant that this group was founded called Evangelical and Catholic Mission or ECM. ECM was founded pretty much in the uh, later 70s, and it was understood that if we work together, we might be able to touch more and more churches. And in many ways, we did well. We even had a magazine, which was an incredible blending of a more English evangelical perspective with Anglo-Catholic perspective because of the fact that we believe in the uh, primacy of Scripture. And even though we disagreed on when the English church began, um, because I'd never, I, I, until I met them, I had no idea there were people who believed that, that, that the English church didn't start until the 16th century. That was that was a mind-blowing <laughs> moment for me. You're, you're serious, right? I mean, you, you don't talk about St. Patrick and uh, St. George, and uh, you don't talk about the Celtic. No, no, we, no, no. Oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> so then the next thing yeah. that happened is that uh, by the time it got to be in the mid-'80s, a number of the bishops uh, who would have called themselves uh, conservative, traditional, Anglo-Catholic, whatever you want to call uh, finally said, hey, we're no longer in the luxury of writing articles and going around and doing conferences. We have to do something dramatic. Now, there was a reason for that. And that's because some Anglicans said, we're out of here. We can't do this anymore. 
And they met in St. Louis. And after meeting in St. Louis and adopting principles, they just went on their way and it created what today is oftentimes called the continuum, uh, the continuing churches. And of course, that was a fairly substantial indication to many of us that the clock was really ticking on whether it would be that Episcopalians who were traditional conservative could stay in the Episcopal Church or not. And so we, in 1989, met uh, and formed something called the Episcopal Synod of America, or ESA. And here's that pin. There's that button. And so I I don't remember where the T-shirt is, but it was 1989. (laughs) And so now what we have before us are bishops who are now saying, uh, we sign on to the following principles we cannot accept, and the beat goes on. Well, um, the problem was, and it was it was a well-organized machine initially. Uh, we had Bishop Donald Davies, who had been Bishop of Dallas, who eventually became the first bishop of the Diocese of Fort Worth, who just retired, who was willing to run the whole operation out of Fort Worth in a bank building. And when the dust settled, we put together an organizational, organizational structure. We had a full-time president. We had a full-time director. Uh, we had at least five members of an office staff. Uh, and we were printing and publishing and speaking and having conferences. We were really uh, at a strong point. And it even was true that there were some who had gone into the continuum who were saying, we're going to keep our eyes on this because if this continues to prosper and do well, then maybe there are ways in which we can work together. And we, we sort of thought so, too. Um, I am, to put it into perspective for you, uh, the last traditionalist bishop in the Episcopal Church. At, this, at that time? In 1994. Uh, since 1994, there's been no priest consecrated in the Episcopal Church mm. uh, who maintains consistent uh, traditionalism. Uh, that is, as it relates to the scriptures, uh, lots of those, by the way, wonderful, wonderful holy bishops. But many of the bishops who called themselves conservative didn't really have a problem with ordaining women. I see. And this was 1994. Uh-huh. So and so the, I, I almost didn't get enough consents to be consecrated. Mm. The Episcopal Church and the various standing committees because they knew that I had made a statement that I would never ordain a woman because I couldn't depart from the tradition of the faith, the, the faith uh, would not support the election. So I barely made it in, I think, by a vote or two. Wow. And there were already several bishops, I mean, quite a few bishops who were traditionalists in the Episcopal Church, but I was the last one to be actually consecrated for the Episcopal Church, in the Episcopal Church, who maintained all of the principles of, at this point, the ESA. And that was less than 20 years, right? I mean, that was within That's a 20-year right. period that, that that happened in the entire movement. That's exactly yes. what happened. Wow. wow. It was breathtaking. It was breathtaking to watch. And one by one, we would watch what used to be called the Anglo-Catholic Diocese picked off and picked off. We used to have something called the Beretta Belt, 
when I was a boy talking about the Breda Belt, that meant all those wonderful heroes from the Diocese of Fond du Lac, Bishop Charles Grafton, to the Diocese of Milwaukee, down to the Diocese of Northern Indiana, down to the Diocese of Chicago and Quincy and Springfield. If you would go back and look at the history of the diocese and the Breda Belt, some of the great, great heroes of the church served there. Mm. And the impact that they had on general conventions, the impact they had on the church as a whole was phenomenal. Finally, when the dust settled, I, uh, years later, 15 years later, uh, I was referred to as the pom-pom on the Beretta. Okay. Okay. <laughs> because the, Bre- the Beretta belt had died. I see. Okay. Suddenly there were a number of high churchmen, that is, ritually astute, who were in those positions. But there, as I try to explain to some people from time to time, there's a major difference between being a high churchman and an Anglo-Catholic. Can you, can you uh, expand on that a little bit for us? Yes. A high churchman, by and large, has a very high view of the church. And in many instances, uh, quite ritualistic and has even a great understanding of liturgy. But the Anglo-Catholic movement is born out of not only uh, the Catholic faith back to Jerusalem and into uh, what we now call Great Britain, but also out of the Oxford movement. We Anglo-Catholics see ourselves as descendants of the Oxford movement. And there are times when I'm with those who are very ritualistically astute, who, if you talk about some of the heroes of the um, Oxford movement, are a little bit unclear about what their principles were. And so we have to remember that the ritualist movement didn't come until after the Oxford movement. Now, I'm not saying they ought not to be wedded in some way. I mean, I I embody that. But all I'm trying to say is that um, the the Oxford movement was uh, a a theological movement. And naturally, if you have a high view of the church and you have a rich view of ecclesiastical history and you have an understanding of your own identity, uh, for many of us, we say it's obvious. Our tradition embodies and expresses that. So what happened is there was an interesting principle in England. Uh, This is going to sound negative, uh, so forgive me. I'll try and do better. But the English church really was worried about us. So we would regularly have bishops coming from England to our ESA assemblies, and they they would represent the Catholic wing of uh, the Church of England, and it was they would come and they would encourage and they would tell us how we're going to work together. And uh, you're the ones now, first of all, that have been affected because, look, you you um, almost weren't consecrated, number one. Number two, the Episcopal Church said that it would protect the rights of those bishops who could not ordain women. Uh, and it was called the Port St. Lucie Statement. Then what happened is that another meeting, it was rescinded. So now there's no protection for you. So if that's what's happening to you, what's going to happen to us? So Mm -hmm. a number of English bishops started asking questions. By then, a group, a movement, which was more uh, like our ESA, 
was called Cost of Conscience in England. Cost of and Cost of Conscience then grew into something called the uh, Forward in Faith. And while some of us were over in England for a Cost of Conscience meeting, our president and executive director met with some of the leadership of the, uh, the Cost of Conscience. And they said, we've changed our name over here. We're now Forward in Faith. And we think you ought to become forward in faith. So pretty much the American expression of forward in faith was born out of uh, the a movement in England to uh, work for the same principles. Keeping in mind, however, we, have already, we had already experienced the ordination of women and re- dramatic liturgical renewal. And now reviewing what we meant by human sexuality. We were already involved in that, and they weren't yet there. But they'd come over, encourage us, and say, we need you, you to lead the way. And they even, we even made sure we had the right kind of button. So there's the first <laughs> forward and faith button to show that we're working together because it's right there on a map. There you go. So there we are. So we would continue to have regular meetings. Uh, I happen. Uh, to have uh, a, a t- root canal problem, apparently. And so when we were in a new Forward in Faith, newly named American version meeting out in Nevada, uh, I had to go have a root canal job done because the pain was unbearable. And when I came back, I was informed that I had just been elected the president of Forward in Faith. You weren't there, so they gave you the job. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> They decided, because of the fact that our president had decided he would go off and check out Rome. Ah. And another, off the record, I will tell you some other things that were going on at the time that weakened our cause. But nonetheless, I became the president and was determined that the president of Florida Faith needed to be a bishop. And so Bishop John David Schofield and Bishop William Wantland decided to push forward. And the other bishops, there were about six, uh, informed me when I arrived that I was the new president. Uh, when was this? Meant that this would have been, let's see, I, I was, it would have been probably about 1998 uh, would be my hunch. So I wound up being the president of, of Florida Faith for a very, very long time. Unfortunately, because of the fact that we had... Uh, some financial difficulties, and it was in part uh, because we had lent money to somebody in Forward in Faith for the loss, one of his lawsuits, and he said he'd pay Forward in Faith back when he won it. He didn't win it. Ah, uh, well, that'll, that'll do with that, I guess. Yeah. And all of our money was gone. Okay. And so I had to reform Forward in Faith with what you might call not much of a staff. My task is forward in faith president meant that I had to use my office to help with a number of matters. I had a secretary who I lived in Peoria, Illinois. She lived in Texas. And we had an office in Texas where we first had five people working, then four, then three, then two, then one. All because of the fact that now we are seeing our money being used for other problems like lawsuits, et cetera, et cetera. So it meant that foreign faith was suddenly in a, a tough position. 
Forward of Faith assemblies were marvelous. I, I mean, I think I, when I think of Forward of Faith assemblies, I think of 500 people gathered together. We had, it was so organized and so well scripted that every diocese that was a Forward of Faith diocese had to elect representatives to come to Forward of Faith assemblies. So even the numbers that we would get were, were um, only the delegates. We would get some people who would sit as visitors and watch. And we had to decide where the best place was to meet. And we, after a great deal of working around trying to figure out how to save money and to have centrally located, opted for something called Our Lady of the Snows uh, in, uh, right outside of St. Louis, Belleville, Illinois. And it was a, a centralized place so that we could have people coming from all the churches. And uh, I think that that's when this became the next button, right before I became president. Then what happened is somebody wanted to be a little shinier. So there's the next one that was presented. And then finally, I had a man uh, working for me as an executive assistant. Um, and he was an artist, too. So he designed the final one, which I think is still maybe it, but he wanted something that was a little more ecclesiastical. Plus, to be really blunt, once the Church of England started dealing with 1992, the ordination of women, and then some other matters, the relationship between Forward and Faith North America and Forward and Faith United Kingdom or England wasn't as robust as it has formerly been, because now Forward and Faith in the United Kingdom needed to work on their own realities mm. and the difficulties that they were having, because after all, they're a state church. Right. Right. And so by and large, Forward and Faith became a little more Americanized, but we still did something that no other group did. Our membership weren't not just Episcopalians. They were, we made sure that we had members of the continuing church. So we had continuing church, Episcopalians, and several other ecumenical uh, observers who were part of Forward and Faith. What had happened is that Forward and Faith UK came over and told us, since we weren't a state church, we ought to just withdraw, and we ought to form our own province. At that point, so that far back. Yeah. yeah. And so we began the process of about four of us diocesan bishops regularly getting together to talk about what it might look like to form a province. Um, so in, in the beginning, Forward and Faith was one of the major players in the formation of the ACNA. And that's because we'd been at this for a very long time. I see. Plus, we were discovering something that was a little bit new for us. The vast majority of us had been not just Anglicans most of our life, but Anglo-Catholics. And so we were now working with a number of people who had been on the Canterbury Trail who came into Anglicanism. And we recognized that they had the fervor and they had the uh, knowledge of the Catholic faith. But our experience that I've just told you today simply was never a part of their experience or even memory. And because all they knew is there's this group called Forward in Faith, they knew what they stood for. But in fact, 
we were um, <clears throat> so prominent in the Episcopal Church that we would meet during general convention. We had daily masses as an alternate to the mass that was being celebrated as general convention by uh, female priests and by bishops who had other points of view about the faith. Uh, we had booths where we could counsel people. We had priests on hand to hear confessions. This is all during the Episcopal Church's general convention. That's what we did as Forward in Faith. Mm-hmm. We provided Catholic alternatives, and we t- tried in every way that we could to model the Catholic faith. And that meant that we even organized ourselves to make sure that we would stand up and speak at general convention whenever matters that we viewed as heretical were being put forward. So it would be remarkable because if the presiding bishop says the president of Forward in Faith would like to speak, people listened. What do you think, in the midst of that witness, made a made the people that you were trying to to win over i guess um you know more reluctant or or what do you think contributed to essentially the episcopal church not responding to that presence mm-hmm. um when you have an election system for bishops in the episcopal church as the episcopal church has I said to a bishop one day, I said, I don't understand. Why can't you just take a position? He said, well, you don't understand, do you? I said, no, I really need to hear. Why don't you just stand and make state a position? Because I knew you years ago. And he said, well, he says, you do understand that in the diocese today, because of the polarization in virtually every diocese, the only priest who can get elected a bishop is a compromiser. Mm. one who can hear both sides and try and keep both sides happy. That's where I started seeing the decline uh, on one hand. But then also what happened is um, we Anglo-Catholics had our principles and we were working on theology and all sorts of other things. But whenever a slot was open in the Episcopal Church for somebody to become a member of a particular committee. Our people would say, oh, I wouldn't want to serve on that committee. I wouldn't want to serve in that committee. You know, that would take this time. And I looked at the names of those people, and I don't agree with them. So guess what we did? What we Anglo-Catholics did is we essentially turned it over to other people. Because you have to be willing to serve on committees and have to be willing to serve in difficult situations if you want your voice to be heard. So in the end, what happened is all those committees, for the most part, only heard one voice, a voice that was very compromised. And so I, as a president of Forward and Faith, could see that what I needed to do was assemble a team that would be able to produce something that would make a major difference. And so what I did in the year um, 2015 is I worked for several years with significant people overseas and in this country, and we had the first Anglo-Catholic Congress that had existed 
for 100 years. They used to be big in England. It's there that we heard famous words from famous people that um, are written on scrolls and on plaques. Um, and in the Episcopal Church, we had several. They were primarily hosted in the Beretta Belt because we there would be more people would be coming. There would be people from what we called the Shrine Anglo-Catholic parishes that we all knew about from anywhere from New York to California. As a, as a boy, I memorized them because if I ever traveled, and it, it, I saw a church and it said um, 10.30, I needed to know whether it was going to be morning prayer or mass. Mm-hmm. Because on Saturday night, I had to begin preparing to receive Holy Communion. So why would I walk into a church at 1030 that was having something I already said that morning, namely daily morning prayer? So we knew where the Catholic parishes were around the country, where we could be sure. Now we were in an awkward position, uh, fast forward, where you might see a sign that says, I Mass at 1030, and then you walk in and you see Mother Maria as the celebrant. So we had to come up with a whole new way of being able to give people safe places to worship. This is, by the way, why I'm amazed by churches uh, in in Anglicanism that will say worship at 10 a.m. Well, what does that mean? Is it Eucharist or morning prayer? Right. So be specific. People need to know what it is that they're coming in for so they can prepare themselves to receive communion, for example. And so we, we need to can, can, let me, let me, that. if I could back you yeah. up for that one, because, um, one of the things that we're trying to accomplish with the podcast is not only getting out, um, you know, doctrinal specifics, but then things like this, you know, practice and custom things that, uh, our listeners should probably know and probably don't. And that's kind of the hope, you know, to build, um, more, more of a treasury, more of an anthology they can refer back to. So. Can you can you explain a little bit for the listener what it means to get ready on Saturday night to receive the sacrament on Sunday? Certainly. Well, I mean, the the short answer is all of us would kids would pull out our St. Augustine's prayer book. And that's what most of us did for years and years and years. Devotional manuals like the St. Augustine's prayer book or Father Fielder's book or the practice of religion. And in there, uh, would be all the prayers. Plus, I think you both know that my wife and I own the oldest living Anglo-Catholic publishing company in the world. Yes. And so the the parish press was where you got these things. So we had tracts, brochures, and so on explaining how to prepare on a Saturday night by what? Asking God to enter us, by making our confession, maybe not in person with a priest, but at least the kind of confession that one might do at the, you know, when they're saying morning prayer compliment. And then um, saying that on the morning I uh, received, I, I seek to receive you truly in the Holy Sacrament of the altar, your body and blood, and I adore you and I bless you because by your holy cross you have redeemed the world. So all these prayers of preparation on a Saturday night before going to sleep. And then on a Sunday morning when we, get up, being able to go back to such practices or such manuals, and being able to go over 
I desire today to receive Holy Communion, your body and blood, and the most holy sacrament of the altar. In particular, I ask that you would bless my family and bless our priests and bless those who will be at the altar today. On and on, marvelous things, so that when we got to the altar, it wasn't a matter of, eh, you're just coming up there, get the bread, get the wine, get back to the seat. It was full, complete preparation. The way I like to explain to people, if you think that Thanksgiving dinner in November is just going to make itself, right. <laughs> right. you've got another thing coming. Yeah, There are preparations that have to be made. You don't just plop down at the seat. You don't pick up a plastic fork or a spork. You don't sit around uh, for about 10 minutes later and say, I hate to eat and run, but I am. I mean, what you do is you actually, if we believe that Eucharist is one of the most ancient terms for the sacrament, meaning Thanksgiving, why would we go to a Thanksgiving dinner at somebody's house in our family in November for eating and running, wearing our old clothes, using sporks, and not being engaged in the preparation or the Thanksgiving? Right. Right. Amen. When you when you look at the, I guess the present state of how forward in faith is interacting with the ACNA, what are what are some of the things that you would like to see, say in the next five to ten years? Because having been the president for as long as you were, I'm sure you've got insight and expectations. I absolutely do. Uh, what I uh, I I wanted to do. Uh, a, as president, was to have more chapters. Uh, I was trying to work on getting more chapters that would be formed in various dioceses. Uh, one diocese said to me, we don't need a chapter because we have a safe diocese. Well, this isn't about being safe. This is about what we can do together so we can learn together, because the fact of the matter is the Catholic faith is not just on a couple of pages of paper, number one. And number two, more people need to do what you just did, Father Darrell, and that is, where do you get that information? How, how do you prepare on a Saturday night? I, I've discovered that we have so many people today who come up with their opinions about things without bothering to go back and find out the way things were done. So history is what I experience in my lifetime. That, that's history today for many people, rather than history being something that I have received from previous generations. So going back and looking at that, um, one of the shifts that we had to make in forward in faith is we had a little bit of a problem. And that is once the vast majority of our leadership and membership was no longer in the Episcopal Church, and once it is that we were able to participate in the formation of the ACNA, and moreover, have our own diocese that we had been working on for a decade, the, the uh, we we wanted to have our own diocese, and we did, and they're soon to elect a new bishop. But the point was that that way our identity was protected. My status has changed over the years. Um, I at one point in my life was uh, a tolerated minority, and then I became a persecuted minority. That was just what it meant to be an Anglo-Catholic in the Episcopal Church. And so 
I called in, in 2015 when I brought overseas uh, from Africa, from England and around the world, some great speakers. I invited all of the leadership of the various Anglican uh, bodies, um, Continuum and ACNA, to participate, and they did. We received virtually no, no thank yous. And at that uh, Congress, I called for a new Oxford movement. And so by calling for a new Oxford movement in the year 2015, I had actually done that in the year 2002. But I, I mean, but I, I officially did that and said, we're going to work together in establishing and making clear a new Oxford movement. And what was my goal? My goal was that we would go back to our roots. We would go back and find out what does it mean to be um, a descendant of the English church. And once again, my, my confusion over how anybody would actually think that somehow we, we didn't exist till the 16th century means that they haven't bothered to read church history. Amen. And the other problem is yep. that we have uh, what I would call uh, a new style of writing. So people want popular books. They want to be able to look at their computers. They want to be able to press a button that says read more if you want to read more. And that means that many of the gems in our treasury of books, nobody's going to push read more. Because it really requires something that we're having a problem with in terms of theological formation in seminaries. There are seminaries today that are not requiring Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Shame on them. There are seminaries today that are not teaching ascetical theology, the theology of prayer. Shame on them. There are seminaries today that are not teaching sacramental theology. Once again, shame on them. So we should not be surprised when people are confused. It's because they weren't formed. So we now live right. in this incredibly problematic world today where we have more information than we've ever had and less formation than we've ever had. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, very. Yeah. Um, hmm. we, we've been talking about that a lot in the circles just in, in around here and was talking to a group of people about that last night. We we're not forming people. I know when I came into um, into Anglicanism about 10 years ago, I, I made a conscious decision not to become simply a Pentecostal and a caller. Right. I knew I didn't know what it was, but I knew there needed to be a retreading of the tires, if you will. And mm -hmm. so um, really set into delving into the doctrine and the practices. And I remember it was probably uh, the first time I read it. It was probably the, the end of 2014, uh, you know, the Sermon National Apostasy. Yes. And I thought that is what we need. We need that kind of, of uh, grit and the theological emphases that he's making. How do we do that? And then obviously that opens up a whole vein of other things that, um, that come along with it. And so I, I think the call for a, a new Oxford movement is, is great. And I've, um, in 2015, obviously I was not in Texas for the for that conference, but I remember following along with some of the stuff I was seeing coming out about it. And I, I thought it was great, exciting. And the next one is in 25, correct? That's right. Yep. Yep. 
Yeah, we're we're really excited about that. I mean, really, um, my goal was that it be independent. That is, the Congress be independent, so that we wouldn't have to deal with um, conflicts that have existed in the past that are unnecessary. Mm. Oh, this bishop's not talking to this bishop, and he broke away from me. Da 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 da. da. You know, while people were sitting around pointing their fingers, the church. Is is dying, right? I mean, who has time to point fingers at people when we ought to be in the streets? When we should be feeding the hungry? Where our hand is the hand that reaches out to people to lift them up and to be able to share faith with them. That's where our hands need to be. And one of the things that Anglo Catholics had to do um, when I was a boy, at least, just for preservation, is we became kind of congregationalists. Not because we wanted to, but for preservation, because the low churchmen thought we were papalists. The papalists thought that we were uh, Protestants, and we were just trying to be good Catholics. So we had to do a lot of our kind of congregationalism or parochialism. But once that wasn't as essential, we needed to learn how to reach out. The strength of the Beretta Belt was those dioceses were helping other dioceses around the United States. The American Church Union, ECM, all those organizations I'm talking about, we were trying to find ways that we could have an in in all of the dioceses in the American Church. But what we've done, I'm afraid, is also what the ill of congregationalism is. And what I mean by that is one of the ills of congregationalism is that it can become diocesanism. Mm. And diocesanism is where we have everything we need in our diocese, and we're going to work together, but we don't need to interact with anybody else. We will handle what we want because we've got the handle on it, and so what these other people are doing is irrelevant to us. And what that will do is will mean that we, if we continue in that pathway, will not have a province we will simply have a federation of dioceses. Just like a diocese can be nothing other than a federation of, of parishes. Yes. One of the dangers of subsidiarity, right? Yeah. That's right. What do you think is going to be the, the next stage of development for Anglo-Catholicism within the ACNA? Well, um, I, I think we have to play our strong suit. And many Anglo-Catholics don't take time out to um, talk about what their strong suits are. So what are they? Well, we have a a timeless faith to present. Uh, We don't have to hold up a calendar when we talk about our faith. Uh, I mean, the last, one of the things that I have fun with is when somebody starts lecturing me on Cranmer. And and then what I say to them is, I was led to believe that you didn't believe in the infallibility of a prelate, like the primacy of Rome. Oh, yeah, we don't believe in the, you know, primacy of Peter and infallibility. I said, yeah, but you treat Cranmer as if he were an infallible word. That's right. You're doing the same thing. (laughs) And so what we have to do is we need to point out that we don't look at one person in church history 
as our founder or or our this or that or the other. We simply have the uh, the Catholic faith passed down. Here's what I tell people: um, you have a choice. Um, you receive from somebody the uh, the the coals of the faith. And your job is to take care of the coals of the faith. If you blow too hard, you'll blow them out. If you don't blow hard enough, they're going to go out. So you have to know exactly how much to breathe on these coals so those coals won't ignite when they're needed in another generation. Because I can assure you this, even from a sociological perspective, some of the things that are passing off today uh, as religion are not going to be accepted in five years, 10 years, 15 years, or 20 years. And a whole new generation will rise up and you're going to ask a very hard question of people in our generation. It's this. Why did you junk those things that were handed over to you? Why did you discard them? Under what authority did you discard them? That's right. And, And the other point that I would make is we need to help people identify Anglican vocabulary. I mean, if, if I have to read one more time, one of our priests being called Pastor Fred, I mean, where in the heck did that come from? That's not Anglican. I don't know where that stuff comes from. Or one day I was supposed to meet somebody in the church, and he told me to meet him in the sanctuary. And I said, okay. So I went up, I genuflected, went behind the altar rail, and I sat in the chair in the sanctuary. And he was back in the nave in the back uh, pew asking me to come back there and meet him. Well, I didn't know that that area was called the sanctuary. I thought that was called the nave. So what I mean is we, we have a whole list of Anglican vocabulary that is, that is being dropped in favor of us borrowing from traditions that have never been a part of our tradition. So we simply need to be able to reclaim our heritage, what I would say. Reclaim our heritage. Like um, Yaroslav Pelikan's Vindication of Tradition. And, and I, I remember in there, he, he, he comments that we have forgotten so much, we don't know what we have forgotten. And so we have to do the hard work of rediscovering what we have forgotten to decide what we need to restore and what we should keep to forget. So something oh, like that, yeah. That, no, that's right. Uh, that's absolutely brilliant. But here's the deal. Here's our problem. When you're involved in a street fight, much of what you learned as a professional boxer is lost because all you want to do is win. Mm. And so we have a lot of people today who are so eager to win whatever battle it is that they forget what it is that brought them to that battle and what they have to defend. So I, I, um, for example, am very happy to attend groups that know how to do appropriate church planting. I find it all very helpful. I'm happy to go see what other churches are doing when it comes to reaching people in communities. All of those things are wonderful. But what we need to remember is we did it first. Mm-hmm. So let's go back and see what we did first, refine it, take into account all that's developed since then, and incorporate the insights that other groups and other people have had without, without getting rid of what we have held on to low these many millennia. 
Well, you, you mentioned the Oxford movement, and I know that the, many of them and the generations immediately preceding were very instrumental in church planting, especially in poor places. Um, and what they did in bringing beauty, truth, and goodness, and just a just a profound um, transcendence, you know, with the gospel where they were. And it's I, I we talk about this a good bit. It's interesting to me that when we look at church planting, especially a lot of the um, Anglican church planting stuff that we hear about, how often it's 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 still replicating something that the Baptists would be doing or the Presbyterians. It's not really going back and re-anchoring in the the Catholic church planting practices that have comprised our entire history. As as again, as you mentioned, goes far beyond uh, in history past Henry VIII. So I'm 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 conscious of that even with our own church when we started um, six years ago, so yeah. something like that, um, and how we're helping get other churches started, and uh, you know to to really emphasize that. What we're doing is the the outgrowth. It's the the outflowing of the Eucharist. You know, Christ's presence in the sacrament, and why we should focus. I think on helping churches get started that are going to look at um, how do they how do they grow in such a way that the people who are coming are rightly formed in good Anglican spirituality, which obviously takes into consideration the timelessness of the faith and the terminology. Uh, we've got a, we, our first building we were meeting in was a renovated office building. <laughs> so it felt like a dentist's office when you pulled up to the outside, which it was only supposed to be temporary. And it was, but the inside, we wanted to, to be a church. So when um, I started trying to identify where the sanctuary ended and the nave began in this, you know, 25 by 50 room, <laughs> uh, everybody's looking around like, what are you, what are you doing? I said, well, we want to start to do the best we mm -hmm. can to incorporate the classic language because when we get the new facility up, we want to have it set and ready to go. Yeah. Oh, you're right on target. And I think the other thing to remember is that um, the Oxford movement really took seriously the priesthood of Christ. And so that being said, that says a lot about what they taught about who stands at the altar, obviously. However, the other thing is it also meant that we recognize that the people of God, by virtue of baptism, are uh, sons and daughters of the king. And therefore, they're treated like royalty. So that's why the Oxford movement succeeded, because suddenly there were, one of the reasons, suddenly there were people who were mistreated, ignored, and forgotten, who were being treated with respect and dignity and love. So. Whenever I hear modernists today talk about uh, dignity and, and the dignity of people and on and on and on, uh, without having an understanding of what we've done in the past, uh, I'm, I'm saddened because that means that they're in leadership positions telling other people that this was never done before. Now, this is what I call neo-Mormonism. Mm. And neo-Mormonism is this, in my opinion. Nothing of any value happened after the death of the last apostle until John Calvin was born or <laughs> until so-and-so was born or here's the worst part. I was born. Yes. And that's, yeah. I see neo-Mormonism because it's to ignore, it's, it's in effect to say that God 
simply didn't know what he was doing after the death of the last apostle. So he decided to uh, go on a vacation. And he waited until the right person came along to raise him up. And of course, all of you, well, in the end, and here's the other part I would leave you with, we would never say this. Although I call it neo-Mormonism. If you go back and take the methodology of those who believe that they need to do X, Y, and Z because uh, it needs to be accomplished and hadn't been accomplished in the past, ask the question, how is that any different from the Reverend Samyang Moon? Yeah. Yeah. Methodology of the Moonies. Yeah. Mm. They made people feel important. They told them that they were critical to what needed to be accomplished. They told them that the leaders of the past have failed to do it, including their parents. And even Jesus hadn't quite completed the task that he was supposed to do because his career was cut short. Most of which uh, both of you gentlemen had, had talked about is the idea of formation. And there's, there has to be humility and formation and that you don't know what you don't know. And that's a that's dangerous right. thing if you do not come to grasp with that. And so, Father Daryl, when you mentioned the idea, you do not want to be a Pentecostal and a, a collar, just a charismatic and a collar, is entering into this with humility throughout the formation process, even if you were already formally known as pastor so-and-so. Right. That has been, for me, being in the formation process, has been humbling. Because you're talking about the neo-Mormonism and how that can look many different ways. That's very convicting um, because, you know, I was pastor so-and-so of, of, of a different uh, church organization outside of the apostolic succession. And realizing that I, in order for me to come into this communion and for me to want to, to be part of that, I have to relearn and I have to have some humility in that. You know, I'm glad you said that because, I mean, we know that pride is at the base of so much of this. And I will confess that all the buttons I held up, uh, some of those groups failed to be what they were supposed to be because of pride and because too much focused on one or two leaders rather than sharing. But uh, I'm, I'm reminded of a story about the 100th Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Bishop Michael Ramsey, who is, of course, you know, a saintly individual, fun to be with, by the way. I enjoyed him immensely. But the debate in the General Synod of the Church of England was over whether Methodists, who in those days during his time were still healthy enough or large enough, uh, if there could be reunion because they were really, you know, from the same roots. And so it went to General Synod. And uh, of course, the debate began, and people speaking correctly in one way were talking about the necessity of apostolic succession. They were going through all the reasons why apostolic succession was so important. Now, Michael Ramsey, by the way, as you probably know, was quite a sacramentalist. Apart from being a genius, he, he was very much in the tradition that we would appreciate. But he, after a while, got up with his bushy eyebrows, said, thank you very much, Father. But I think the issue before us is not do they have apostolic succession. The reality is they have apostolic success. 
And the fact of the matter was, many of the places that Anglicans refused to go were where Methodists went. And so that being said, if you want to be a traditionalist in the church today, that means you have to take your message where you don't necessarily want to live, with people who don't necessarily want to hear you, but that's what you need to do. Give me $100,000 and an office and put me in a middle-class neighborhood, and we'll talk about planning a church. Put me in a place where nobody can even put money in the offering plate on a Sunday who's dying for the sacraments. That's where we need to be. Go where only God, go where only the gospel can be successful. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. But yeah, we like Michael Ramsey. Yeah. One of our guys. <laughs> yeah. Yes, sir. Um, as we're wrapping up, uh, is there anything that you would just kind of want to sh- share that you, you haven't had a chance to, that you, you would want the listeners to kind of tune into, um, you know, be it for something in the present season, like something you think maybe, you know, the Holy Spirit wants to, to say to them or uh, just to, to be in prayer about? Well, yes, I think in one sense I would, because as you've heard from what I've had to say uh, during my 77-year pilgrimage, uh, circumstances have changed dramatically. The organizations have changed. The organizations also Uh, have to function differently today. And even though they've all kind of proceeded into or morphed into Forward and Faith North America, what we had at some point to do, just not long after I I left the role as president back in 2015, uh, was we uh, need to be able to target better. And so by then, we now had what I didn't have when I became president, a province called the Anglican Church in North America. And so the new task of Forward and Faith was and continues to be, what are the gifts that we have had, lo, these millennia, and in our own American organizational structure that now need to be shared with a new province called the Anglican Church in North America, where we recognize that not all of them were disgruntled Episcopalians. Because keep in mind, virtually every one of the organizations I've told you about was ministering to either disgruntled or disenfranchised Episcopalians. That's not what we have anymore. And some people even were so accustomed to fighting in the battle, they didn't know what to do when they no longer had a lawsuit. When they didn't have to go to a, a, a convention or a synod and stand up and 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 argue for the lordship of Jesus or the, the Trinity. I mean, what do you do when you finally have been able to win on a number of points that you wanted to win on when you were in your former iteration? That's the task of Forward and Faith today, is to find out that the, we had to be negative at a time in order to show people what was really happening. But now we're in a different phase of ministry. And our job, I think, is to help bring people in the ACNA who are new to Anglicanism into the Anglicanism uh, that was entrusted to many of us centuries ago. That's great. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know that's been uh, the experience for a lot of the folks for myself, but then also for the parish I've got, how many people are, have not come from uh, either they've come, you know, back to the Lord having been gone for a long time or they've come from another tradition. And so learning that, no, this really is Catholicism at its best with this English root. And we're going to live into this, not because we must, but because we get to and, and living into that, um, into the fullness of that, creates a vibrancy that is quite contagious and um it's just a you know we love seeing it at the church no i i love it immensely and i think that we're needing i see there are more confidences on uh, reaching the unchurched than there are the de-churched and the de-churched are more difficult to reach as you know and so more of my ministry has been spent dealing with the de-churched because they need to have some healing over the ways in which they were mistreated. And the, we can do that because we have the mechanisms via God's grace to be able to do that. And we have to go back and help them be healed by God's grace of the brokenness. And so we need to, in forward in faith, in my opinion, allow those who do really well in ministering the unchurched to do it. But we need to be engaged in ministering to the de-churched yeah yeah amen yeah and letting them see the the vibrancy of the life of the church the vibrancy of the catholic faith and how that is not antithetical to the uh evangelical zeal that those true truly can be married together and when they are it is a beautiful thing that is full of life excitement and truly enriching life Mm-hmm. That is absolutely right. You know, I I think when we wrote the prayer for forward in faith, that's the reason why we put those three marks of the church in there, specifically for that purpose. And we wanted to delineate between the three. Uh, and the reason we wanted to note the delineation is because we wanted to get away from what some people call three-string Christianity. I don't understand what that means. I mean, I know what people say it means. But there, there's only really one river. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so the fact of the matter is occasionally when that river goes in different places, it manifests itself in different ways. And, uh, and as I, I said to a group recently, um, if, you, if, if you really want three streams, which I would call three, well, the four marks of the church are one holy Catholic and apostolic. Right. But if you want to look at three other marks that one wants to talk about, being Catholic and evangelical and charismatic for this, this as it's oftentimes stated, I said, what, what you have to remember that those aren't exclusive. I mean, you, you walk together doing that. If I go into a bad neighborhood and all I want to do is plop down the middle of them and start doing a litany, I shouldn't be surprised if not everybody's thrilled with me. Right. That's right. But if I go into a neighborhood where they were brought up in Eastern Orthodoxy and they stopped going or their church left because there was no need for Eastern Orthodoxy, for me to stand up and ask them, are you saved, brother, may not be the best opener right. with that group. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Very good. Very good. Well, sir, we thank you for your time today and for joining us on this podcast. And if uh, we get listeners who email in 
with uh, more questions for you. We will be sure to pass them along to you. I'm always happy to be participating in what you're doing. You know, I keep on telling my wife I'm longing to sing the Nunc Dimittis. So when I look at both of you today, hear what you're having to say, I think I'm getting closer to singing the Nunc Dimittis because now the Lord is providing what I've been praying for for these many generations. The zeal, the interest, and the hunger that you have exhibited and others that you're ministering to. I can't thank you enough. You're an answer to prayer. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Well, if anyone has any questions or emails they want to send in, send them to us, you can send them to me at Daryl, D-A-R-R-Y-L, at Ascension, A-S-C-E-N-S-I-O-N-W-V dot org. Thanks again for listening, and we will join you again next week.